Oftentimes, black folks and other persons of color are told to be patient with progress and that it often takes time for things to change. Hmm. Well, the great and wise James Baldwin had a brilliant response to that often exhausting mantra. Check it. What is it you wanted me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You always told me it takes time. It's taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time, my nieces and my nephew's time. How much time do you want for your progress? Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey folks, how you doing? How you doing? What's going on out there, fam? What is going on out there? Well, welcome back to another week. Welcome back to another week of profane faith in the house, in the place to be. Wow. What'd y'all think? What do y'all think? We are in it. We are in it here. We are what? Six weeks in to profane faith season four. I'm telling you every week, I feel like there is just bomb conversations and amazing Amazing uh, people just on this week will be no different. In fact, I actually have the next three weeks planned out. Oh, I got some amazing, amazing folks coming. Um, I'm going to introduce my guest here in a moment uh, for this week. But uh, next week I've got, especially with the American Academy of Religion coming up and their national conference, I'm having uh, the great Dr. Chris Driscoll uh, and Dr. Monica Miller uh, on. I'm having Chris. Chris is coming back. Monica is going to be on for the first time, and we're just going to talk religion, method, identity, race, more religion, <laughs> and how all those things mesh together. Uh, we had an amazing conversation. I had to do some editing because that conversation went on for two and a half hours. So I did some editing, but I had to put it in, give it to you in a two-part series. So after this week, you're going to have two weeks of that. And then the following week, oh, we're going to get into this brand new documentary uh, looking at LaVisha Hawkins. If you don't know who she is, um, just Google Doc Hawk and Wheaton University or Wheaton College, and uh, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And so we're going to be getting in. We're going to be getting down. Plus, I'm going to be meeting with folks at AAR and bringing y'all some more folks, some more voices. So, y'all, season four is lit. It is lit like a tear of whips. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. That one was rough. That one was rough. Um, well, I want to hop right into this conversation. Um this has been an interesting week. This has been an interesting semester for me. As you know, I'm an educator. And those of you listening for the first time, maybe this is your first time listening to Profane Faith. I'm Dan White Hodge. I am the host of this 
podcast and uh i always encourage folks to go back and listen to episode zero zero and episode zero one you can check them out on whitehodgepodcast.com or you can just wherever you get your podcast at you can check them out but uh this week was interesting uh as an educator this well this whole semester has been interesting really um it's how can i put it it feels like this is kind of it's like this is everybody's in crises that's what it feels like it feels like everybody's in a moment of um, just dealing with death, dealing with serious physical ailments, dealing with craziness. You know, where I work, we're in a bit of a craziness state right now, um, of which I'm completely just staying out of as a black man. Um, but, you know, morale and all of those things are affected, right? Um, when those type of things happen, especially when the leadership um, of an organization, you know, fails to deliver and just completely, uh, you know, implodes. And so, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting time. And so, you know, this this year has took uh, two good friends of mine, uh, Joaquin Velasquez and uh, my man, Steve Bull, Stephen Bull. Uh, both I went to high school with, both graduated back in uh, 92. Uh, we hung out um, a lot. Uh, uh, unfortunately, Joaquin was uh, taken by cancer. And uh, Steve, my other friend, he was, uh, you know, a massive heart attack. And uh, it sucks because I live out here in Chicago. And when I find out about these things, you know, it's usually like a two or three day notice. Like, hey, this person died. Are you able to make it? Um, you know, a brother can't just, and especially flights to the West coast. Um, you know, they're just not cheap. Um, and I wish, I wish I could just go. I mean, it's one of the things I hate about living away from family and community, right? It's like when these things happen. Um, but also with that, along with that, it just, you know, it just gets you to think it's like, man, I'm 45 and like these cats is my age and it's, it's just a trip, right? It is a trip. And those of you who are older, you kind of already know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are younger, maybe you have experienced death and maybe, you know, uh, in, in your life and your, in your journey. And it's just, it's always surreal to kind of, you know, when you, you and, and, and Steve and I, well, Joaquin, I, I spoken with him um, a few years back and, um, I knew he was battling with cancer. I thought he was in remission. Well, he was in remission for a while. Unfortunately came back, hit him harder and just took him out quick. Um, and, uh, Steve, I, you know, Steve was a good friend of mine up until the point that I was converted back to Christianity and I became a fundamentalist. And when that happened, we fell out. Um, and it really wasn't until years later that I looked back and I was like, wow, man, I really, I really messed up on that. Um, and so, you know, it, yeah, I had reached out to him a few years ago, you know, saw him on Facebook as, as most of us old folks do, <laughs> we find each other on Facebook and I was just like, Hey man, good to, you know, see you, how you doing? But you know, all the niceties and pleasantries and stuff. And I would reach back out to him and just say, look, you know, here's my number and I'd love to talk with you, man. Just catch up and, you know, just let you know, I'm sorry about, you know, what, but just how, you know, how things went down and stuff, man. Cause you know, I was just really, his point was like, look, you know, we got to allow people to really process things where they're at and we can't just shove it on. And of course, as a fundamentalist, I was like, no, we got to tell them right now they're going to burn in hell. And so, oh man, those are the type of relationships that, and, and it, and it gets me right. Cause it's like, you don't, death doesn't, it, 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 it sits on you and it, but it, it's so final, right? Cause none of us know what happens afterwards. None of us, you can think you do. And we all tell ourselves different things, right? I know I do. Um, but we don't know what happens. And 
you know, religion tries to help it a little bit and, you know, faith tries to help it a little bit. Uh, um, therapy tries to help a little bit. But the reality of it is, is that, um, you know, it's just it's a final thing. And so I never really got a chance to tell him, like, man, dude, I am really sorry. Um, uh, and, you know, I, you know, you, you feel those things. Right. And you feel those things. You feel it because it's just like, man religion and you know and i was doing the best that i could you know i was having a conversation with my wife family and you know she was like man you know you did the best you could at the time with the information you had and it's like yeah absolutely i i i get that there's still the human part of me though that feels like god damn you know because i was so wrapped up in being right and wanting to be right and seeing quote-unquote soul saved and really just wanted to be right because that's part of what fundamentalism is about is about being right and about people you know submitting to your rightness uh, um uh it, you know that it, i don't know i i, I yeah i'm I, I feel some some strong i feel a strong sense of loss with that and a strong sense of Gosh, I never want to be in that position again. On the other side, I don't want to also be uh, like I've talked about on this show plenty of times, a liberal fundamentalist. I don't want to be someone who is on the other side of it and, and, and can't see any other way except for what's in front of them. And I think it's interesting because that's really where we're at now, right? It's like uh, you have super woke folk on the left. You have ultra conservative right, you know, people on the right. And, you know, it's like, well, where... I don't know. I mean, what what does I mean, this kind of brings us, you know, to who I'm going to be, you know, talking with today, you know, Dr. Shanika Walker Barnes um, and her book on racial reconciliation, um, because what does that really look like? And you, and y'all know me. I'm not a big fan of racial reconciliation. I think it uplifts at least the terminology and the way it's been set um, in a lot of the literature I feel like it's been set up to propagate, you know, particularly white moderates and and whites who just want to feel good about themselves. Right. You know, let's hug it out and and chum it out. And, you know, and it washes away, you know, all the shit uh, when you really got to pile through some of that shit. Right. So I haven't been a fan of it until I read this book and I was like, OK, Janika Walker Barnes, this is this. That's the kind of reconciliation I want. I only wish I was able to kind of put some of that stuff into practice along with racial and all the intersections that come with that, right? Racial um, uh, and uh, uh, and religious reconciliation, you know, with, with a friend of mine, you know, like I said, with Steve. And so, you know, my heart goes out to his family. Um, it took me a minute to even figure out because it kept saying, you know, Steve Bull Sr., Steve Bull Sr. And I was like, well, maybe that's his dad, you know, and anything. Because you know, he had two kids, two kids that are probably aren't even older than any older than my daughter, you know, who's 12. Um, and so that, you know, it's just, man, I, I mean, I can't even imagine. Um... So, yeah, those are the, some of the things that, you know, just been weighing on me. And like I said, it's just it's in, and then my friend Joaquin and I, you know, we we stayed in contact and, and whatnot. And uh, I just wish I could have, you know, seen him. You know, there's always that that thing. Right. It's like, you know, it's like with my grandmother dying, you know, back in 2009. I never got a chance to really see her um, before she died. I just got a call middle of the night, you know, uh, saying she had passed. And uh, I'm just like, man, I, I didn't even know she was sick. Right. Like, I didn't even know she was like that, like, you know, because I had just spoken with her like the week prior and then bam, here she is dead. Um, so it just, you know, it gets you to think. It gets you to think. I don't know many people who have lived, you know, who said, man, it just, I'm not, I'm, I'm thinking now. It's like this, this stuff is like, wow. Um, so yeah, that's been weighing heavily, you know, on my mind and, you know, processing it. And I'm, you know, I'll bring it up with my therapist and we'll talk about it. Um, but I encourage y'all, you know, if you got some stuff that you got to tell somebody, you know, tell, you know, reach out to them, get it out to them and not, 
oh, to make it right in the universe. But, you know, I mean, to, to let those folks know, man, because it's like I really was an asshole when I was a fundamentalist. All of us are when we're fundamentalists, right? It's uh, it's just one of those things that comes with the the territory, and so, um, yeah, I I would have hoped to have made some kind of a penance for that, um, and you know, it's been part of my goal is to go back to um, the kids. Well, they're not kids now, but you know, the kids that I used to work with then, and to really apologize because I'm just like, man, that I, you know. I'm sorry. I'm, I just, I, I saw things in a binary construct. Um, and I don't, I don't anymore. Um, and thank God for that. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure damage was done and, you know, you hate to be anyone who's, you know, the, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to put all this on me, but it's like, you know, no one really wants to be the person that, that makes somebody else walk away from, you know, like the faith or whatever and stuff like that. I don't think that happened with Steve. I'm not saying that that's me, but you know, no one wants to be that level of assholeish, right? No one wants to be that level of of a, of a, of a complete idiot. So, um, yeah, those are just some things, y'all. Just some things. So, I was happy to have my guest uh, on this week, Dr. Shanika Walker Barnes. She just wrote a new book. I bring the voices of my people. This is a womanist vision for racial reconciliation. Okay, a womanist vision for racial reconciliation. Y'all, this book right here, this is this is the spot cuz I was like, okay, I I need to I, I need to get into this. And and it is wonderfully written. I would say those of you who are educators or have or do workshops, please use this as a resource. This is a very 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 good book. Um I'm going to be using it in my intercultural communication course. I'm definitely going to be using it in my doctoral level courses. Um it is well laid out, it's well articulated, it is supported. Um it's it it interacts with critical race theory, intersectionality, womanism. And if you don't know what womanism is, uh she's about to explain it, so just hold your hold your pants. And, and, and check this out here in a few minutes. Um, this this is just I just I can't speak highly enough of this book. This one was really good. Um, and, you know, at the back of the book, it says it says this, something is missing when we talk about racism and reconciliation. Um, you know, conversations about Christian communities, social justice and racial reconciliation too often neglect the voices of women, particularly women of color. And so this book, uh, you know, cries out from the edges and centering on the experiences of women of women of color. We truly hope to work towards reconciliation. Uh, we must listen to their mind and voices. Um, I too, I couldn't wholeheartedly uh, agree more. And you know, that's why I wanted to play the James Baldwin quote at the beginning because it's like I feel like you know, as this is all we hear about. You know, it's like oh, you got to wait on change. Change takes a long time. I don't believe in the arc that you know the the, the mantra that says the arc of justice. You know, in the universe bends towards. I I I don't believe that. Um, I think that's something, you know, I get that, you know, Martin Luther King used it, but towards the latter part of his, his life, he, he, he was starting to walk away from it. Okay. Um, and more importantly, um, there, when you start to think about, you see the amount of crap that's out there and that's what's going on. I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know. I think that we're going to enter a time, <laughs> you know, uh, a real hard time before it gets better. Um, and I get that that's not, especially in America, right? I mean, the United States, we don't want to hear that. We want to hear that things are going to be great. I want to see my American Idol and who's got talent. And I want to watch my other reality shows that I'm watching. I don't want to think about, you know, where the next meal is going to come from. Like, really? We'd have to fall to that? I don't know. That's for a different show. 
<laughs> I'm getting off on, on, on a track. You see, you see what happens when, when you know, when death is, is there. I see death on every corner, right? <laughs> Get some Tupac in there. I got a new Tupac book coming out, but I'll, I'll be bringing that out. Baptizing Dirty Water is coming, y'all. <laughs> Shanika Walkabar, she's a clinical psychologist, which just makes her even more like, oh my gosh, you're a theologian and a psychologist? Damn. What the hell? She's bringing it, y'all. She's a clinical psychologist, public theologian, and a minister. She's also the author of another book, if you haven't read it, Too Heavy a Yoke, Black Women and the Burden of Strength. I'm going to put all these in the show notes, whiteodgepodcast.com. Uh, she's written a dozen, uh, dozens of articles in theology and psychology. She serves as an associate professor of practical theology at Mercer University and McAfee School of Theology. Um, Dr. Shanika Walker-Barnes and I had a chance to sit down and talk about some of these things and to really get at, you know, like... We got some we got some issues. We got some problems right now. Um, and it just can't be solved by just shaking the hands, you know, and, and having us feel good. Um, and that's what I appreciate about her and particularly the psychological perspective, because those are things we that are often missing, and especially from women of color. Um, so with that in mind. I'm going to let y'all go. I know I've been talking. <laughs> uh, I, I, I get, a, get a few of those things out. Uh, but check out this conversation. Peep it out. And let me know what y'all think. Whitehodgepodcast.com or you can go to whitehodge.com. Holla back at your boy. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Dr. Shanika Walker-Barnes, thank you so much for coming on Profane Faith. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Oh, tell me, uh, well, before, because I want to get into this book, I bring the voices of my people. And this is your third book? Second book? This is my second, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Um, what? Tell us a little bit, I mean, I love always hearing the responses to this question. Like, what what has been happening from birth to now? Uh, <laughs> what is who is Dr. Shanika Walker Barnes? You know, ultimately, I'm a, um, a black girl from Atlanta, um, a, a, a product, a child of the civil rights movement. My mother was involved in the movement. Some of her siblings, um, and I, I came up in the aftermath of that, um, and got to benefit from. Um, some of the gains that they made in terms of being um, in predominantly white spaces, having opportunities that weren't necessarily available um, for my mother and her peers academically. Um, and at the same time was deeply rooted in um, the ethos and understanding of race that shaped the movement. Um, and so um, have struggled with that in many ways. Race has been a primary question in my life. I started my career in clinical psych. Um, and eventually went to theology, but the, the underlying theme was always race. It was always either um, what is happening to my people and how can I help um, be a, a change um, to that agent in that. Um, and, and, you know, and theology um, helps me to broaden the question to why is this happening? <laughs> um, and, um, and, and, and what do we need to do about that? Um, so that's really kind of who I am. And, um, you know, I consider myself a womanist theologian, an interdisciplinary scholar. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I'm, I'm, I'm Lakota and Wally's baby. Um, and, and everything that I do is just trying to be accountable to, to my people. Um, you know, as the second person in my family to graduate from college on one side and the first on the other. Um, everything I do is about trying to be accountable to to them and do do right by them. Wow, that's deep. I, I um, 
Yeah, that's deep. There's there's, there's a lot being said just right there. Um, let me ask this: What uh, and just again for I mean we've had I've had other womanists on, but explain a little bit of your perspective, your and your engagement with womanist theory, womanist theology, uh, what that means for you, and what that means in the general broad yeah. prospect. Yeah. So womanist is a term that was developed by um, Alice Walker. Um, she developed it in the, the 80s, around the same time that The Color Purple was coming out. Um, the definition is in her book, In Search of My Mother's Gardens. But womanist um, and womanism um, developed in reaction to both the feminist movement and the black liberation movement. Okay. Um, right. and, and, and it was a way of black women standing up and saying to b- both the white women of the feminist movement and the black men of the black liberation movement, y'all ain't listening to us. Mm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, it was a way of saying um, your blues ain't like mine. There's something about this, this, this gender piece that is missing um, when you want to act like all women share the same fate. And also there's something in this race and racism conversation that is missing when you act like all black people want to share the same fate. And so womanism was was brought about to think about the way in which um, the term we talk about now is intersectionality. Um, But it was and so this was part of that practice. It was a way of saying um, that somehow that my black womanness is not just a matter of my race and my gender added together. That there is some, so it's not just that I share experiences with men, women and I share experiences with black men, um, but there's something unique about being situated in my black womanness. Um, and that there is something, and that that shapes how I experience oppression. Um, it shape, but it also shapes my response to oppression. Um, so that womanness, because we are, we tend to be collectively concerned, mm. um, we are concerned with the um, survival of of whole people, male and female, right? We want to bring everybody with us because we understand that um, when, when black women prosper, everybody prospers. And so our goal is not just in looking out for, for black women, but we recognize that in healing what happens to black women, we're healing the world at large. So we're trying to take everybody with us, um, but we're starting with ourselves. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that in a nutshell is how I interpret um, womanism. It is starting with the lived experience of Black women and saying that that tells me something important and necessary and vital to the the work of undoing oppression and establishing a just world. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, okay, so now, I mean, with that, I love this, this definition. And, and I mean, and you, so you talked about, well, let me... I got so many questions. That's why I'm kind of like, I'm trying to say, okay, which one do I want to get at? Which one are we going to have time for, Doc? Um, can you talk a little bit then about the psychological? I mean, what, what, how is, what, what is that, what does that look like? What have you like, you specialized in, but you said you got the theology, but I, I, I remember, I think when we first met, it was at a CCDA or something like that. Yep. And you were doing a workshop on self-care and, yeah. and, and whatnot. Uh, do you, I mean, are you still practicing, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Um, uh, therapy and, and and whatnot? Are you are you, are you still holding that down? Or are you you mainly theologian theologian doc? It's kind of a little bit of both. Um, gotcha. I am a licensed clinical psychologist. That's I keep my therapy license. Um, mm-hmm. um, and part of that because that gives me a little bit of independence from um, academia and mm. all of this craziness. Because I'm like I can leave. Uh, <laughs> oh, mercy! Yes, I yes. have another way to make a living. Yes. <laughs> So it actually enables me to speak truth to power because I don't have to be so dependent on 
on power for my livelihood mm. um, or not this particular version of power. Right. Um, so um, so I definitely use that. But one of the ways that I think it shapes what I do, um, one, I teach pastoral care and counseling. That's my primary um, lens. And so that in itself integrates the psychology and the theology. But I think my approach to theology has always been from the perspective of um, how does this hit people on the ground? Right. So what's the consequence of this theology? So um, is 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 what I'm hearing from this pulpit, If is what I'm reading from this book going to wind um, somebody up in somebody's on somebody's therapy couch? Right. Because mm-hmm. I've had that happen. Right. Where um, I'm I'm treating clients who it turns out that the the basis of their foundation of their problem is actually the church. Um, and it's the way in which um, they have been abused by the church or it's the way in which um the, the church has um, distorted scripture and people are wrestling with who God is. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm always trying to think about um, how does this hit people on the ground, even when we come up with this really complex um, theological theory, feminist theory, critical race studies. It's always for me, it's like, yeah, what does this look like in somebody's life? Um, and then along with that, I'm very attentive um, to the work of um, folks who are advocating for justice, I tend to be very attentive to the emotional um, and interpersonal dynamics that underlie that work. So that when we're in these discussions, I pay attention to the emotion that's happening in the room and the emotion that's not happening in the room, right? I pay attention to what's being said and what's not being said. Um, And sometimes it means I'm the one that says the things that I think is there and nobody wants to say. Uh, (laughs) Because sometimes it means that I see a process that's unhealthy um, and unproductive, and I'm going to disrupt that process because I want to push it yeah. in the way of productivity. Um, and so I tend to call out a lot of things that people don't like being called out. Um, but I also have a real heart for activists, especially people of color, women of color, especially. And so most of my therapeutic work these days comes more in the form of being um, kind of a chaplain for activists. That's really kind of how I see my role. Um, that I am trying to um, be the person that encourages activists to take care of themselves, um, even as they are taking care of and trying to change this sick society we're part of. Mm. Well, I love the combination simply because, A, I've been a big fan of therapy uh, just because I've been involved in it myself for so long now. Um, And to see that combination, to see the intersections that you bring uh, to this has been refreshing quite honest and uh, that's not to take away any of, of, of the the stuff that you know the 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 therapists and counselors that I've had over the last 15 years you know but you know they've mainly been white and yeah um it's 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 been nice it's been nice to not have to kind of explain certain things and have to kind of spend that time since I'm going to be paying for it, having to explain that side, <laughs> the black side, like, well, tell me a little bit more about this. It's yes. Like, um, and so this has been very refreshing. So I, 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 it's like you, the triple threat, you know, so it's like oh. you, you got, you got the, the education, you've got the therapeutic component, you can speak theologically. So that I think is amazing. Um, so bringing that now into uh, where we're at now um, and the era that we find ourselves in. Your book really um, gave me new hope for the, even just the term racial reconciliation. I have not been a fan of that based off of a lot of the things that you bring up 
yeah. in this book. Um, but first of all, what was the genesis for this? I bring voice, the voices of my people. I, I yeah. Talked, what was, yeah. What was the genesis? How did this break down? <laughs> well, I mean, really, that that com- that book really started when I was a student at Duke Divinity School. So mm. um, I did my theology training after my solid psychology career. I had actually been on faculty for a few years as um, in clinical psych programs um, when I went back to school. And I happened to be at Duke um, at a time when racial reconciliation was the um, it was the word of the day. Right. Um, I was there um, at the same time that um, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove was a student. Um, um, Chris Rice and Emmanuel Katangale were starting the Center for Reconciliation. Um, Willie Jennings and Jay Cameron Carter were there. Um, Brian Bantam was my preceptor in Willie Jennings' class. And so we were talking about wow. race all the time. Yeah. <laughs> wow, good night. Yeah, right. Like, the all-star so, team. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we'd be like walking from the parking lot, me and Jay Cameron Carter, and like talking about all this stuff. And so um, part of it was just being there and being in these conversations. Mm. And if you notice, all the voices I named were men, right? Um, yeah. And so I'm in these spaces and there's always this yes, but voice. Right. Um, and and I struggled so much because I would say, yeah, I see what you're saying, but something's missing. And I couldn't for the longest time figure out what was ris- missing. Um, but I knew I was going to write about it once I figured it out. <laughs> and eventually I realized what was missing was the voices of the women. Um, and mm. and that so many of our the especially as I got into um like CCDA and the whole Christian racial reconciliation movement. And I got involved in that because of Chris Rice, because at one point he was like, you're really struggling with this material. I was in his class journeys to reconciliation. And, you know, he's witnessing the struggle in the weekly papers, reflections I'm writing in where I'm like, okay, I agree with this part, but then let me tell you all the things I disagree with. (laughs) 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 And so he was like, you should come to CCDA. And so I did. And, um, initially was just like, wow, these are like black and white and Latinx and some Asian American folks always all talking about race openly, um, yeah. which as a Southerner, I hadn't seen. Okay. Um, right. And so and so that provided an opening for me, like we can actually have honest conversation um, about race. I don't have to hide from you the fullness of who I am. Um, but then over time, being immersed in those conversations, um, I started realizing that there was something wrong there too, that there wasn't a good theology of racial reconciliation, even though that Mm. was one of the organization's core principles. And um, um, Richard Twist, I remember one time sitting down with him and he he and I have this conversation like, yeah, they're getting race wrong. Like they're getting it really (laughs) wrong. (laughs) And, you know, me trying to steer that conversation in some of the ways in which I felt like they were getting race wrong. And when I say they, I don't mean just CCDA. I mean that whole... Yeah. movement that called yeah. itself um, racial reconciliation that's predominantly a white evangelical movement, but mm-hmm. also exists in the mainline church mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so I started realizing that some of their basic premises about race were like, they weren't just wrong. They were laughably wrong. Like it was like, if y'all talked for five minutes to women of color, you would realize why you were wrong. Come on. Right. Like, Come on. If it, like so this idea <laughs> that race was about separation and all we got to do is get people together. And I'm like, um, I'm yes. a black woman from the South. My people have never been separate from white people. Right. That my, I, I have, I have aunts who have spent um, their entire lives 
working in nursing homes for white families. Um, neighbors of my family who have spent their entire lives cleaning for white families, um, family members, friends, that this is the, caring for white babies. I'm like, this is our story. And we can be in your space. And women of color have not been separate from, from white people. I mean, from slavery onward, we've not been separate. Um, women of color, um, enslaved black women often had to um, sleep at the, at the mistresses, the foot of her bed, in case she wanted something in the middle of the night. Um, we we nursed white children and those white children grew up to enslave us. Right. So I was like, wait a minute, this whole thing of if we just get together, it's going to be OK. This is such a fraudulent concept. Um, and it's actually one that does harm to women of color, because very often yeah. for us, proximity to whiteness just actually disposes us to more harm. It doesn't make everything better. Um, yeah. And so that yeah. was my I kept saying that, you know, pushing that over and over and saying, they're not looking at critical race theory. So this is another one of my um, kind of background. You know, my undergrad um, was in African-American and African studies as well as psychology. And so I had this kind of critical race background that I knew um, that in the so-called secular world, I use that term lightly, um, yeah. there were theorists that were doing amazing work. So even at Duke, um, Eduardo Bonilla Silva was at Duke. We weren't talking about him in my theology classes. And his race and racism is just oh. like, it explains the whole world. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. exactly, and exactly. He, he's down the way in another building and we're not even talking about him, and, but we have a whole center on reconciliation, right? And we're not talking about the way in which he frames how we talk about this new colorblind racism. Um, and so all those experiences and knowledges just helped me see that there were so many gaping holes. Um, in the reconciliation movement that that stemmed very much from its um, genesis in kind of promise keepers and evangelicalism. I think, yeah, exactly. What? Oh my gosh, exactly. I mean, you, and for my, for me, a lot of the entry was, you know, this promise keepers, and this was like, I don't know, this was the nineties and whatnot. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm still young in my my faith. I'm coming out of the the nation of Islam and you know converted, you know, to Christianity and. Yeah. Um, here are these folks at my church telling me, oh, you got to come to this. This is for you, brother. You know, this is, <laughs> this is, this is us coming together. And, you know, and I'm looking at it and I'm like, right, but how have we, how are we just kind of overlooking the history and still just really placating the, the yeah. deeper issues of racism? I mean, you talk about it in your book, you say, Race is a construct. This is on page 40. Uh, yeah. For those who are following along, listening. Um, <laughs> race is a construction and it is also real. And it is because it makes it, it is because it makes a tangible impact on people's material lives. Yes. Yes. So, you know, I, I, I just, you know, because part of the movement, what it has done, because it's, it's really crafty at co-opting um, some elements mm. of kind of race theory, right? And so what it has co-opted lately is this language of social constructionism, um, because we have moved into an understanding where, um, hands down, the overwhelming majority of people understand that race is a social construction. But then what, what the Christian movement does is say, oh, then it's not real, or then it's a sinful construct, right? Mm, yeah, um, and so yeah. what we got to do is the way to get rid of racism is you abolish race. And so, and in that, all races, right? Um, it treats all races as if um, they were socially constructed in the same way. So 
Blackness is a problem. Whiteness is a problem. Every, everything's a problem. And now we can get along if we don't think of ourselves as black or white, um, which is, again, ridiculous. Um, <laughs> we, have, we have a lot of social constructions. Um, we're called to be agents of God's creation. And that agency we exercise through social construction. Our national identities are social constructed. This whole thing we call America, the United States of America, had to do with some 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 white folks putting some boundaries down and saying, you know, who who belonged in what country and where this country stops and where another country starts. Um, and then whether or not you are born into that or become a citizen of that entitles you to a set of privileges and rights that they have also constructed. Right. That's construction, too. Everything we do is construction. Yeah. Yeah. The issue is not that we constructed these races is how they were constructed. Um, it's the issue of power. Um, it's the if issue of privilege. Um, and if we don't attend to that, we can abolish race and something else will take its place. Right. So that's I mean, that's the other benefit mm. of being a, a, a psychologist. Yeah. Family systems therapy tells me that if I don't deal with the root issue, the problem will recycle itself in different forms. Unless I is unless I get to the heart of the process and the dynamics that are undergirding that particular problem. So it's the same thing with racism. We can say, oh, it's about social construction. No, it's not. It's about white supremacy. Um, and we got to deal with that or we just going to will the the, pro, the problem will rear its head as it has in the new Jim Crow. Right. Mass incarceration <laughs> yeah, right. Because, because we don't deal with the root issue. So it's just going to keep recycling itself. Wow. 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 I mean, that's and, and I think that's again, that's been my it's been my problem was when, when, when we have these talks around reconciliation. It's not that I disagree with the concept, the theological concept, the social concept of reconciling. But so much of it is left. Right. All those things that you're talking about out. I yeah. love the uh, the uh, the post that you put up the other day on Instagram and, you know, these images of what racial reconciliation, you know, oh, yeah. beautiful <laughs> image. Yo, I was cracking up <laughs> about that. It's like dismantling white supremacy doesn't start like this. And because you're so right. I mean, it is I'm sure you've seen the color of fear. Um, yeah. It's 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 that explosion with Victor. It's that ignorance yes. of David Christensen that is yeah. like. Well, why can't we just all get along? And you're yes. and, they, and you're you're going the wrong way. You know the spikes. You know you're going against the spike. The problem is back on you, colored people, right? Right. Um, how have you navigated some of those things here in the Trump era? Let's just let's let's get down to brass tacks. I mean, as a black woman, as a scholar, as a psychologist, yeah. What, what? How have you navigated some of that in light of? Now you have alt-right people saying, hey, we're discriminated more than against more than more than black people. Right. Right. We, yeah. so, so now, now I feel like this is this is this is actually in some ways the fruit of the Christian racial reconciliation. movement. Oh, oh. Right? because it's like if we can adapt and appropriate and misuse um, understandings of race to actually keep um, people of color complicit um, and silent in their own oppression, then oh now white supremacists can take that same methodology and actually turn it to say, oh, we're the oppressed people. Because now people want to talk about um, patriarchy, want to always call out privilege. So now we're the ones being hurt because, you know, the Christian racial reconciliation movement made it all about feelings. So it's all about how black people and white people feel about each other. So if all white folks feel bad, then then people of color actually become the problem and that whole thing. Right. So. Um, I think like many people, um, we were doing the therapeutic move, 
which is meet okay. people where they are, right? Okay. That was the approach. I think pre, pre, pre-November 8th, 2016, yeah, the dominant yeah. approach, even from folks who were more radical, was that we will meet people where they are um, and we will try to guide them along gently. Even if we didn't think friendship was the answer, we thought it was part of the methodology, right? That we can we can somehow use this relationship. Establishing relationship isn't the answer, but maybe we can establish relationship and bring people over to a different place. Um, in November 9th, 2016, we all woke, that, woke up and was like, oh, that shit didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> That did not work. It didn't Ugh. disrupt anything. These folks woke up and still elected that man um, and felt Gosh. okay about it, right? Yes. Um, and yes. so then it was like, okay, no, regroup. Think about what exactly we're trying to do um, and, and really be explicit about that and what that takes. And let's just say we don't care about their feelings anymore because they didn't care about ours, right? They, they didn't care about ours, but also that emphasis on feelings. And that's not even to just be cold, but it's to say that the emphasis on feelings and comfort of the oppressor is, in fact, an act of white supremacy. Mm. So when we construct these dialogues in a way that we want white people to stay in the room, we don't want white people to run away, we want white people to come along with us, we are centering white supremacy. And so I think part of what the, you know, that, that just, all those suspicions and the conversations that many people of color were having that just became magnified on that day, right? It was yeah, just, yeah. We, couldn't, we couldn't ignore it anymore. We couldn't hope that we could eventually get them to think differently. And so I think part of it for me was that, no, I've got to be a different type of therapist, right? Um, mm. Because therapy isn't all about um, coddling people. Therapy is, is often about confrontation, right? Yes. It's about finding that right timing moment where you basically say to people, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Right. It's about, you know, seeing the dynamic in play. And um, instead of letting that same dynamic play out, saying, no, I'm about to step in here and disrupt this whole dynamic because I want to destabilize this system. Because we know in family systems theory, systems adapt. Right. And so the only thing that forces a system to change is some act that is so destabilizing that yeah. the system has nothing to do. And, and, and it's destabilizing and it is sustained yeah. that the system has to reorganize itself. And so for me, it became, okay, this is how we have to approach this now. We're no longer having these small conversations on the side. It's about looking for those moments of disrupting and just being a disrupting force. Like in some ways, owning that I'm, I was, I, I was disruptive before. I'm just now <laughs> going to be real explicit about it. And that, you know, now it's not I'm disruptive just because I show up as a black woman. Now I'm being disruptive because I am literally trying to disrupt your process. Yes. And I'm at, at the yes. very minimum, I'm letting you know I'm not going to be complicit in this process. Woo. All right. This is see, this is not now now we now we now you're taking this to church. This is now this is what I'm <laughs> talking about right here. One of the things I love about this, you name the four pillars of white supremacy, which, oh my gosh, this is um this connects with uh, some of the, the some of the theories that I use, which is uh, um, Ritzer's McDonaldization thesis. But I mean, let me name these first. Four pillars of white supremacy. Your name is commodification. Which, oh my gosh, Kanye West. You know, right, you just, <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Oh, Lord. Those of you listening, if you haven't already followed the good doctor on Twitter, and I'll put all these in the show notes, y'all need to go follow her right now. Um, then you talk about extermination, which we're seeing mm -hmm. um, in many different, in a lot of different varieties. My, yeah. my daughter, you know, because of her elementary education in history was baffled when Charlottesville happened and was just oh. like, Dad, I thought we... I thought we I thought we won World War II. Yeah. Why, why are there still wow. Nazis? Wow. Mm. You know, and, yeah. uh, you know, you said then we vilify them. So this demonization. Yeah. Yep. And then should we assimilate them, indoctrinate? Woo! Can you break those down just a little bit and in, in how those interact and intersect with, you know, with, with what your, you know, kind of your thesis and premise of your yeah. text? Yeah. So that came out of, um, my relationships and work with women of color. Um, and it really came from, um, you know, and part of the work I did with CCDA was around organizing women of color because we were having these sideline conversations. Um, it came up um, actually out of the Justice Conference where um, women of color were having sideline conversations and said, we need a space. Um, we need to stop. So we we realized as, as women of color, and by that I mean um, women of African descent, Asian descent, um, Latinx women, um, multiracial women, indigenous women, we realized that we weren't talking to each other because part of what also this Christian racial reconciliation movement had us doing was we were all talking to white people. Yeah. Right. So you yeah. had black people talking to white people, um, Latinx people talking to white people, Asian American people talk. We weren't talking to each other. That's <laughs> That's so we were letting because, again, we're centering white people. Yes. Um, we're yes. centering white people. We're not talking about, to each other. And so we started talking to each other. And as we talked, we started like understanding the ways in which racism affected us and affected us in some ways that were the same, but in some ways that were different. And that part mm. of the difficulty that many non-black people of color have in identifying themselves as anti-racist allies is that they think, well, I haven't experienced slavery. I haven't experienced Jim Crow. This isn't my fight. I don't experience yeah. those things that those black people are talking about. Right, but they're right, experiencing right. things. It's just a different form of racism. And so, um, again, having been exposed to um, Andrea Smith's Three Pillars, and I've been teaching that in classrooms over the years, and my students were always confused by it. Well, I, and I admit, when I first <laughs> read it, I was confused by it. I was like, right. wait, what is she saying? It took me a few times to like, wow. Okay, this is amazing, and I get this. And so I thought, um, I, I want to use this, but I need to translate this. Okay. Um, because yeah. some of the language is not, it's not working with my students, right? Um, and I want to translate it in ways that people understand and that they can use it to see themselves as implicated in this whole racist structure, right? You just may be experiencing a different pillar of it. And so I took what she originally had, three pillars, and I added that um, that fourth one, um, which was assimilation or indoctrination. Okay. Because that's again, Kanye, right? Yes. That's, yes. Like, that's again, Kanye. It's how do you get, how do you get people of color to be their own enemies? Oh my right. Gosh. You yes. indoctrinate them into the system. Um, and we've seen that play out to whole, whole people groups. So there are some racial groups that the way they have survived uh, American racism is by trying to assimilate into whiteness. Right. 
Um, and so there, there's some there's some um, Latinx groups that are able to do that more, some Asian American groups that are able to do that more. Um, and so, again, this goes back to what um, Eduardo Bonilla Silva was talking about yeah, when uh-huh. he was talking about that category of honorary whites. I wanted to to name Ooh. that process, Ooh. but I also wanted to point out that even the so-called honorary whites are actually being victimized by racism in their appropriation of whiteness, right? Um, that that doesn't clear up everything for them. Um, and so that they're still an oppressed and marginalized group, but just may be out of touch with their own oppression and marginalization. They're still being disempowered. If you're being yeah. made to hate your people, you're being disempowered. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I wa- so I wanted to talk about those ways. And so um, for for African-Americans and other people of African descent, but especially those of us who were um, um, who who are part of what they call legacy blacks. Right. Um, the folks who you can identify one or more of your grandparents was enslaved. Um, th- that language has been it's been commodification. Right. It's so the primary pillar there is we exploit them. We make workers out of them. Um, you know, so that was historically slavery. Um, contemporary settings is is um, sports. It's mass incarceration, forcing yes. people to work. Right, yes. you see that we turn people into commodities, commodities into an um, ex- exploitable labor pool. Um, which is why you know Colin Kaepernick isn't supposed to um, talk back. You know, it's like go out there and play ball and shut up. Right, it's turning him. It's when he resists commodification. Wow, that like the system can't deal with that because they they want to own him and use him. <laughs> Right. right. But now you, you know, you're saying you refuse to be owned on, on our terms. So that was a problem. Um, and then extermination is what we see primarily with indigenous people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We we want the land. They're in our way. We need to get rid of them. Right. We can't. We've tried exploiting them. We've tried enslaving them. That didn't work because we were on their territory. They can run away. Um, white folks had diseases that then decimated parts of the population. Um, so so commodifying um, indigenous Americans didn't work as well, so they had to turn to extermination. Let's just kill them, right? Let's kill them, um, or let's get rid of them, or let's culturally steal their culture, right? And and claim that they don't exist anymore. So we're the carriers of their culture, right? That's Johnny Depp, right? Over and over again, like yeah. <laughs> like claiming he's the he's the closest thing to a Native American because there are no no other Native Americans obviously around to play roles, right? Um, <laughs> it's one of my own colleagues asking me. Who's ever seen, you know, do you even know a Native American who's seen one of them? Like literally saying that to me, I'm like, wow. that's extermination. That you were thinking these folks are dead. Um, and therefore you don't have to address or honor them in any way. Um, and then demonization, we see that now that shifts. Um, used to be Asian Americans, China, um, you know, the great red threat or whatever it was that we called them. Now it tends to be people more Middle Eastern mm-hmm. um, that that becomes. So you look at the depictions of um, Middle Eastern folks on TV and they're terrorists almost always. Um, and so it's that, that mentality. Um, and then finally, assimilation. Can, if, you can't, if you can't exploit them, if you can't kill them, if you can't demonize them, can you at least get them on your side? That's kind of the, the other strategy white supremacy uses. Can you get them on your side? And we have no shortage of people we can point to that have been assimilated into white supremacy, thinking that they are benefiting from it, but they're only benefiting as much as the power structure allows them to. That is, wow. So that's, yeah, that, that's, that, that is the double truth 
rude right there because yeah, I mean, and, and you think about, I mean, this era that we live in, right? I mean, we're we've already got commodification going at everything. I mean, it's like yes. it's, it's it's a Craigslist world. Nothing is yes. everything's recycled. Everything is you know you've got kids doing crazy things online just to just to get likes to get follows, and so yep. there's this innate sense of so this is new i don't know if you've seen the previews for it so dennis prager um has, has put together this this uh film one of my alt-right students uh was telling me about this yesterday because they were like oh you gotta you gotta you gotta see this you gotta see this this is this is what i'm talking about you know all those liberals you know they're just trying to, to, wow. to get get free speech taken away so it's it's a, the title of it is called um no safe space and the thesis of it is that you know these safe spaces um have created this uh you know um basically a space where 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 no one can say anything and you know everybody's offended and so they're kind of their thing is like i have a right to be offended and we got to get all these uh you know things out there and we know we, we can let the public decide but you can't silence me and you know right, all right the the silent majority right I mean, oh. you kind of hear that you know so you talk about reconciliation begins this is chapter four um yeah. reconciliation begins with a curse yeah. um and you give oh my gosh alice walker in the color of purple so i curse you i say what that mean he say i say until you do right by me everything you touch will crumble yeah oh well, lord jesus yeah. and we're crumbling right <laughs> environmentally we're crumbling right now politically the u.s is crumbling um, and so, yeah, I mean, Jeremiah Wright said it and he was right. The chickens have come home to roost. Yes. You know, and so we are crumbling in so many ways. And so, um, yeah, but that's not the model you see in Christian racial reconciliation. Right. It's all supposed to be hugs and, and maybe some tears, but it's supposed to end in hugs and like singing Kumbaya and being friends together and holding hands and um, really being concerned about each other's feelings. But that's not how oppression ends. Yeah, I don't think it's ever ended that way. Right. Even the civil rights movement. I mean, if we if we want to be real about it, one of the reasons that the civil rights movement worked was because behind in in the corner, like off to the side, when when white folks were looking at King off to the side, they saw Malcolm off to the side. They saw Bobby off to the side. They saw all they saw Angela. They saw all these other people who they said, oh, wait a minute. If we don't deal with this group, we're going to have to deal with that group. Right. So the, so so violent resistance and even the threat of violent resistance has always been part of the struggle. Like we tell the story as if it was only nonviolent, but it wasn't it. only nonviolent. Talk there, about it. There were there were armed demonstrations in America. Talk about even it. in the American South. Right. White folks knew that and they were scared of that mess. Right. And so um, so part of it is to say that when we're not centering white people's feelings, we don't usually start this type of um, movement for social change by holding hands and like, let's joint tell our stories and talk about how both of us are involved in the sin. No, we point out the sin and the sin is racism. That's the sin, right? Mm. We point it out and we try to tear it down, right? But part of it means you have to confront, especially in a world that is designed to protect the oppressor. Like, like all of American society is designed to protect white folks from their own shit. <laughs> right? Like it is, like how, it. how do you yeah. enslave people and keep thinking, like how do you leave your plantation, folks can be, and you go to church and you sing hymns and then you come back and all in all, you think you're a good person? 
Right. And your whole family talks about you as you're a good person. Right. So all of white culture is designed to protect white people. And that's actually a psychological thing, too, because the white psyche is built on deception. Because if mm. white folks start confronting in mass the reality of what they have done on these shores, that 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 will cripple them. Yes. But that's exactly what reconciliation requires us to do is point to it, point right. to the thing that everybody's trying to act like isn't there and say, look at that. Look at what you did. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to do about that? Wow. Who? <laughs> just need a moment to think about that. I'm serious. I'm envisioning that. Like you said, in mass, yeah. thinking about that. I mean, this is, this came up the other day again in class. I refer to the classroom a lot because my undergrads just oftentimes just, they don't, they, there's such, there's on one end, you have such a blind sense of um, hope, uh, mm-hmm. if you will. I'm not against hope, by no means, yeah. please no one hear that. But it, yeah. there's, there's, there's a sense of being blind. I'm like, well, as long as we just hear the other person. I'm like, one student was like, oh, I'd love to invite Nazis on campus because I want to know what, why does a Nazi want to be a Nazi? I'm like, I, I could give a shit about why right. somebody wants to be a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, and then on the other end, there is, right, there, you know, there is this sense of, one student, this is another one of my alt-right students, was just like, oh, well, you know, I think people just need to get over stuff and forgive people because and forgive yeah. the history because, look, the Jews have forgiven <laughs> Nazis. So why don't we just get past And really, the problem with forgiveness is with the person. If you can't forgive, that's because right. you haven't worked out. This, right, right now, I'm just like, I'm sitting there, uh-huh. I'm like, but if you look at it systemically, okay, yeah, let's use the Jews as an example. They have had systemic systemic justice done right you yes. you can't go anywhere at least in public you can't go and say ah jews aren't uh uh you know they, they didn't die in the in the in uh-huh. the den. they came over you know they, they went to germany looking for better work you know uh-huh. and then the nazis helped them out it's like no germany itself says no we we have banned both the confederate flag and the swastika you yeah. can that's illegal yeah. <laughs> to do yeah. they yeah. faced people in court whereas in this country we're still wondering what happened like i didn't yeah. own slaves why are we why are we still yeah. doing this and so you talk about this again the same chapter page 164 you said getting confrontational the journey of reconciliation begins with confrontational truth telling yeah. that lays bare the complex horrors of oppression yeah. lord have mercy yeah I mean, and again, if you want to use, you know, Jews as an example, like literally the whole world had a meeting about Mm. how do we make this right Mm. after the Holocaust? There was a meeting of the world powers, and that's how Israel got established, right? And our ongoing posture towards Israel, which has been one of like, like unwavering support. Every presidential candidate has, you know, that's a big thing. You got to say you will unwaveringly support Israel. It is a posture of ongoing reconciliation and reparations toward Israel. It has some problems, yes. but that's why people are doing it. Yeah. Like, so that, so it's not like, and, and that the never forget, right? And part of that is because the Jewish people, the people of Israel realized that memory was important. They realized, and maybe because they had seen what had happened, 
from the American slavery experience and from Native American genocide that when people are allowed to forget, they don't try to do the right thing, right? And justice just continues. And so if you look at um, our Jewish brothers and sisters, never forget has become so important. The issue of memory and how to remember um, the establishment of museums countrywide that keep telling the story so that more and more people will see and know the story. We have a, a Jewish museum here in Atlanta that I've taken my students to, right? The Holocaust didn't happen here, but they understand the world needs to know the story, mm. right? Mm. That means we got to get the story out and many people and, and get people to confront that story over and over again in perpetuity to make sure it never happens again, right? That's what we need. We've never had anything remotely looking like that, right? Anything remotely that remotely. says, tell the truth about what happened on a day-to-day basis. And I'm just talking slavery. We don't even have to talk Jim Crow and all the other stuff. Just talking slavery. What had to happen on a single day to keep the slave system intact? You know how many sins that is? (laughs) Like one day in one city. Oh my God. Right, right. One city, one day. (laughs) (laughs) Once. Like it wasn't like, oh my bad, I forgot. No. Right. The whole structure was complicit on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis and keeping this intact. We got to confront that. And we got to say, how does that still shape us today? Because you don't have a system that evolves around that and it just goes away and people become whole new people. It's still there, which is why it's been able to bubble up. It just needed a catalyst. Yes. And Trump was that catalyst. It was there all along. We've been saying it was there all along. White people wouldn't believe us because, again, the racial reconciliation movement prioritizes white truth, right? And so when we kept saying no is bad, they kept saying, oh, no, you're just pessimistic. Something's wrong with you, right? You're holding on to grudges. And we were like, no, this mess is there. We feel it. We know it. Um, And so we saw it took one catalyst. I mean, not even, I mean, he's not even an intelligent catalyst. (laughs) Like he's just it's so simple, the smallest catalyst that You're it right. took for all this to become manifest again so that we are now seeing the rise in the alt-right movement um, that is here. White supremacy is here and they're proud of it. Yes. There's no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no like, oh, well, I meant it. Nope. No, no. This, is, this is who we are. Yeah. Jeez. That's yeah. just it. One city, one sin. You talk and you talk about this again. You talk about repentance from America's original sin is white supremacy yeah. and its contaminants. Imperialism. Yeah. Oh, come on. Colonialism. Yes. Jesus. Slavery. We know that yep. in, in all forms. And I'm not just oh. talking about the enslavement. I'm talking about credit cards. Yes. Banks. Yep. Slavery. Genocide. Jim yes. Crow. Yep. Mass incarceration. Capital punishment and the everyday yeah. forms of racism experienced by African Americans, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, Native Americans, and Latinx peoples. Yeah. Yeah. The way that that is filtered into our economic system, right? The fact that you and I probably had to pay more student loans for our education. Oh, yeah. Because our families didn't have inherited money, right? Because they, you can't inherit it property when you are property. And so our families didn't have a house paid for. 
that could be collateral or could get us through college, right? So we probably have more student loans. And then we get hired in these places behind everybody else. And they tell us, well, we don't have as much money to give you as we'd like to give you. But this is, you know, we, we, we want you to be here. So we're going to give you something. And then <laughs> you're probably paying more money for your mortgage because you got more debt because you put yourself through school. Yeah. Right. So even if you yeah. and your colleagues make the same amount of money now, you are give, you are putting more of your money into a mortgage. Y'all can live on the same street and have paid the same amount of how, but you didn't pay the same amount because they were allowed to move into the neighborhood when it was like considerably cheaper than what it's, what it's worth now, right? So you are paying more money to move into that neighborhood. Same house, same, like the system is rigged. Our mortgage rates are higher because the bank looks at all that history, right? The bank says yep. you don't have, you don't have family wealth. Yep. You're paying this student loan. The, all of that, you're a bigger risk now. We don't have a history for you. And so you're going to pay more for the mortgage for the same house, same neighborhood, right? That is how, how, how rigged our system is. You know, I mean, I just, again, I, 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 and I want folks listening to pause on that because that that's the day to day I, I paid off. We both, my wife and I paid off our credit cards in 2010 and we're just like, okay, this is great. And then one by one, each of those credit cards started to raise all of our interests wow. and it went from 0% to 32%, 45%, 52%. Yeah. So I'm calling these banks and I'm like, Hey, 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 wait a minute. We just paid off. We just right. paid you guys off $8,000. We paid you off. I made that money. I gave it to you guys. Cause that's our debt. We're paying it back. Cause that's what we've been taught. Yeah. Pay your debts. And then, you know what they told me? I said, you are a credit risk. Whoa. You are. A, I said, "How? Explain to me how I'm a credit risk because basically you don't you don't owe anything, right? And one by one, right. all my interest rates went up. I had to close. I had to file yes. bankruptcy in 2011. I paid everything wow. off in 2010, but filed bankruptcy in 2011. Now, you know, capitalize that with the fact that I didn't have health insurance at the time because I was doing adjunct work, mm. you know, working 12, you know, mm -hmm. teaching 12 classes and working right. in six different institutions with no health care. Right. My daughter gets sick. She gets the, um, what is it called? Rotovirus. So mm. she has to go to the hospital. Yeah. That's a $90,000 um, expense, $60,000, wow. any $1,000 expense that we just, we couldn't afford. Right. Um, right. And so now this is, this is all real time. And then, but now, People are telling me, oh, you should just budget better. You know, I mean, I don't know how you, you just got to, you and your wife just need to have a better budget, you know, for, wow. for this, you know. But again, so that, again, that commodification, all these things that you're yep. talking about. And it's disorienting. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Oh, Lord. And you're constantly questioning your own reality. Right. That I mean, that's that. And, and that's a stressor, a stressor yes. that impacts health. Yes. Right? Um, in which your daughter's health problems could actually have very little to do with her body, but could have something to do with enslaved ancestors, displaced ancestors and the trauma. Because now we know the trauma literally is written onto the body and survives intergenerationally. Talk about it. We know this now from studies of the Holocaust. Talk about it. That the, 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 the trauma is in the bodies of people who are two generations removed from the Holocaust. That mess is getting handed down, right? We're, but, but you don't have health care. And you got to pay out of pocket. And you got all these other economic issues, but you're supposed to have it together, brother. You got a, you got a doctorate. It's not supposed to, 
you know, yes. fixing, fixing as, as like the Bernie bros like to tell us, fixing the economic system is supposed to change all that for you. Oh my gosh. Right. Yes. Like, but no, because all of this stuff, again, it's a social construct, but it has very real and very um, wide ranging impacts on our lived realities in ways we think about in ways we don't even think about. Ooh. Ooh. Um, I don't see how I want to frame this question because I don't want to frame it like, all right, doctor, tell us next what to do this. The last book I just put out, I mean, I put it at the beginning. I'm like, this book is not going to, and I think this is probably what probably pissed the publisher off. Well, not even the publisher, but particularly the readers of, you know, who subscribes to like IVP and, and, and whatnot was, you know, people always yeah. want the tell us, okay, you told us, you whipped us, you gave us a little sadomasochism, you know, you got the yes. white liberals who like little, yes. the little social sadomasochism. <laughs> yes, yep. tell me. I'm, yes, yes I'm, I am privileged. That's right. Yep. Um, But tell me what I need. Now that you've done that, tell me what I need to do to fix it and so I can feel good. And, you know, I put that at the beginning of the book. I was just like, I'm, I'm not, that, this, that's not this book. This is the yeah. alarms being sounded yeah. from page one to all the way to the end. Yeah. But that being said, <laughs> Yeah. What, you talk about keeping Sabbath. This is uh, yeah. on page 221. I think that's extremely important. What are some of the things that you have done or that you see? You talk about our spiritual strivings. This is yeah. um, chapter five. Um, you give a quote by uh, Zora Neale Hurston. Their eyes were watching God. Amazing, yeah. amazing read. They seem to be staring at the dark, but their eyes were watching God. So, I'd be curious, walk us through a little bit of that, that, that chapter five there. Yeah. So I don't end the book by saying what we need to do. I end it by saying who we need to be. Amen. Amen. Yes. Right. Like, thank you. Good, so, clar right. clar good clarification. <laughs> yes. Like we, we're, we're not, because for one thing, what we're talking about trying to create, we've never seen. Mm. Right. And some mm -hmm. people have turned away from the term reconciliation because of that, because they think reconciliation means returning to some previous state of relationship between human being, but it's not about relationship, right? It's about justice. So reconciliation is the establishment of justice for Christians. It's the establishment of God's shalom, right? Mm. Now that, so that's a whole different thing. So that's not about, okay, what we need to do to establish God's shalom. No, who do you need to be to establish God's shalom? How do you need to understand God to establish God's shalom? So it starts there. It starts with remaking who we think we are. And to do that, that's tough work. Yes. Again, like I said, if white folks come to grips, that's why white guilt is so grippling. Because, yeah, it ought to be it ought to be like crippling in a whole lot of ways because it was awful. It was awful. <laughs> right. They did that mess. They did it. You know, there's this um, I talk about it in the book, this quote from Traces in the Trade, the film where this white family traces their ancestral legacy as slaveholders. Wow. And they're on one of their family's old plantations. And okay. like they're 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 facing the reality of this mess. And at some point they say, you know, we always say then they didn't know better. They said, but the reality is they knew better and they did it anyway. Wow. That's wow. some powerful mess, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you got to grapple with that. Like they, they knew we were human. They, they like to say they, they knew we were human. We could talk. Like It right. wasn't like we weren't telling them. Right. They we bled. I know they saw right. us bleed. They saw us cry. They call, they saw us scream. They saw all of that. And so part of that is to confront the reality of that. We have to take that on as spiritual work because it, the task of it is huge. And part of what I wanted to do, 
in the whole first part of the book is just complicate our notions of race so that we realize it's huge, right? It is so huge that to, to be serious about doing this is overwhelming. The only way you can do it is if you approach this as something that first we must do. We got to do it because our our faith compels us to do it. Mm. But you have you have to believe that. I think with everything in your heart that this is what we're called to do. As people of faith, we can't we don't have any other choice. We got to do it. And then you have to think about what does it take to sustain that hard work, right? Wow. The the work that you're never going to finish. Um, Amen. And part of that is believing in the impossible. Christian is supposed to be able to do that, right? Um, it's Sabbath. It's leaving for for, pe- for people of color. Sabbath it means those day to day practices and regular practices of taking time out. But sometimes Sabbath means leaving um, destructive spaces. Wow. Right. Because we think we have to stay there, especially women of color. We're taught to stay, stand by your man, stand by your church, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, stand by your pastor. Yeah. But no, sometimes we need to leave. Sometimes Sabbath is walking away um, so that you can tend to self. Maybe you can reengage. But the other thing is this isn't it's, this work doesn't fall to any one person. So people of color don't need to feel like we have to take responsibility for it. And do the work all the time. Somebody else can take up the 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 burden, right? Um, that could be a person of color. It could not, but we don't have to be doing it all the time. So I wanted to leave with some framework for now that you know how fully messed up this is, right? <laughs> fully, fully. <laughs> you know how fully messed up. Yeah, like how and, and much those, we those, have distorted. Those of y'all listening, there's a whole, there's a shitload of footnotes yes. up in here in the bibliography, so you can't be walking away talking about it. Yes. Well, I wasn't sure. And what, what research are yeah. you citing? Ah. Right. Yeah, I wanted to bring it all together so people could understand how, how much we have distorted God's plan for humanity. Yes. Right, like how fully we have done that. And then to say now, if we're going to address that problem, we don't know what we're doing because we've never done it before. We don't even know what it looks like because we've never seen it. But we got to work for it anyway, which is actually a Buddhist move. Right. Mm. I can never reach perfection. I must work for it every day. Wow. Right. Like that. That's that move. Like we're, we're diving into the fray, not having a clue what we're doing. And that's hard. Um, and so I wanted to leave with a sense of. So how do you keep doing this? How do I keep doing this? How do I keep working with white people? Right? Like, I mean, right. on a very real, but how yes. do I keep working with white people who I actually really like, right? Like, how do I do that and then wake up and hear more news about Trump and, and folks who follow him and, or worse yet, hear news about the so-called white liberals and progressives who, who uh, do the stuff that uh, is harmful to us, right? How do we maintain hope um, in the midst of what seems like um, such a hopeless situation. And so I wanted to leave with some sense of what do you need to do? And so um, part of that is um, accepting that um, for Christians in particular, accepting that we are captive by this. We are called to be agents of reconciliation. We can try to get rid of that term if we want to, but it's right there. And yeah. it says that this is what we're called to do, mm. right? That. To, and I read the gospel through that lens. I see the whole story from, from Genesis as God trying to create a people that will act like they've been made in the image of God. Wow. And a lot of that has to do with how they treat each other. That was the thing that kept getting Israel over and 
in trouble over and over again. Like, because even like when they were like worshiping other gods, God would be like, ah, oh, but he was a good king. He just worshiped them the ball a little bit, but it was all right. Like, you know, <laughs> it was like, oh, but when when right, they were right. oppressing the widows and the, oh, no, y'all got to go into captivity now. Right, <laughs> right, right. Like, right. that's what they got in trouble for, right? And so that, so that's our mandate, right? So how do we become those people? So part of that is we have to confess and lament. And I'm not the first to talk about that, but I didn't want to stay in there. We tend to make an idol out of lament, right? I think okay. we tend to sometimes be like, you just, if you cry it out, it's going to be okay. As long as you cry together, it's fine. No, you got to cry and then do some work, right? Talk like, about it. Come on, Cry God. and pray and do some work. And so part of that is standing in solidarity. So, you know, the, the emphasis of the book is moving women of color, black women and other women of color to the center and saying black women and women of color ground and basically get to make the determination about what recon- racial reconciliation looks like. Mm. Like we need to be leading. And so if you want to do this for real, you got to stand in solidarity with the people who are most oppressed by the system. Um, and I use the intersection of race and gender, but I could talk about sexuality. I could talk about disability. You got to get to where the marginalized are in the same way that Jesus did. And you got to stand in solidarity. Um, and, and standing in solidarity is different a different type of relationship because it's not friendship necessarily. Um, but it's about actually allowing the marginalized to set the agenda, right? Mm-hmm. And so that if if white folks do something and white and black folks say that's racist, then you know what? It's racist, and you got to deal with that. Like, that's part of what standing in solidarity is, um, and saying that you have to give up your own agenda. Um, and then a lot of it is Sabbath. Yeah, it's learning how to engage but pull back. And I think people of all, this work will burn us out. It will yes. literally kill us. And we can name people. We can probably sit, you and I can sit here and probably name people we know that we think died ultimately. Mm. It's happening now. Mm. Elijah Cummings, mm. it's happening now. But mm. people, we can be like, no, it was probably really racism, right? And the fight, the fight against it that took that brother out at still too young an age. Yes, right? yes. And so we can... It's, it's that type of thing. And then, you know, I talk about grace. We're going to mess up. Like, so there has to be some element of grace in this. Um, again, because it's complicated, because we don't know what we're doing. That doesn't mean that we center um, feelings that um, keep the system going. But we do have to try to respond to people. We have to try to establish the, the world we want in ways that look like that world. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which hopefully we want a world where everybody receives compassion. Everybody receives justice and fairness. Everybody receives some measure of grace. And so we have to be able to extend that to other people. But we have to extend that to ourselves as well. Um, and then finally, we just have to be hopeful. And um, honestly, I don't know if I can engage this work if I didn't think God was real. And on the yeah. side of uh, yeah. the disenfranchised, I mean, occasionally, I mean, even last week, I was like, God, you out there? Like, yeah. I mean, Celie asked that too, right? You know, it's the point where mm-hmm. she stopped speaking to God. She like, are you listening? You must be asleep, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I had a moment yeah. just this week where I don't even remember what it was, but I was like, God, you sleep? You paying attention to what they're doing down here? Like, but ultimately, we have to have some sense of surrender to God and hopefulness in the midst of the storm, which is where that that quote from Zora Neale Hurston comes from. 
you are in the midst. The hurricane is on you, right? You are in the midst of, of just horror and your life is at stake and they're still sitting there watching for God, mm. right? And that's, that's the posture we have to take. That is not a posture of helplessness, yeah, right? But it is a posture that says we can do all we can and we still need God. Ooh, ooh, Doc. That uh, telling you, this is this is church. This is this is the word I I needed to hear. I mean, mm. I, this is it's easy to go completely secular because of the colonization that you know so much of Christianity has had. And this is the conversation I have with a lot of my humanist and atheist friends who you know just like you know I worship a god and. And, you know, that's been so colonized. It's like, yes, there has been a lot of colonization, but you're right. I love that. You said, you know, it's like, man, I can't do this work if yeah. if, if I didn't believe there was a God. I mean, that's, yes. Um, and that's not to knock anybody else's work. And, you know, I know folks who listen to this, they come from all walks of life mm-hmm. and, and, and whatnot. But it's like, for me, I, I there has to be, at least for me, uh, and I'll speak for myself. I, I I have to believe in something supernatural uh, yeah. that that it has to happen, and that's what I've been saying. Even now, like people say, "Oh, what's the answer?" Like, let's get Elizabeth Warren elected and get him impeached. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You, you're still looking at it through the old lenses. It's right. like you can impeach all you want. It's like what? It's five years too late. I mean, it's like yes. you, know, you should have impeached Trump in 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 what during the 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 what is it? Central Park Five. I mean, that's when right. y'all should have started impeaching right. papers. Exactly. <laughs> Yes. Let's go back to when his dad was, you know, systemically taking out black folks, you know, in his housing, you know, units and stuff. So, no. um, But, man, like you said, man, this this whole thing about Simon, and that's part of what I've been trying. And I love that you have the, you bring both the theological, the, 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 the therapeutic, then you've got the racial aspect because that, that stuff is for real. And I know even my own doctor has said your blood pressure is too high. You know, you, you, you are, you've got hypertension and it's like, I've had to take some serious looks at that. Um, you know, and in my, in my mid now to going on late forties, it's like, you know, it's like, we gotta, we gotta look at those because like you said, it can, it can take us out Yeah. or leave us paralyzed in, in depression and anxiety, um, rage and anger that. Yes. Who doc you preaching. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all, the book is I Bring the Voices of My People, A Womanist Vision of Racial Reconciliation. The forward is by Lisa Sharon Harper, put out by Urban's Publishing. This is an amazing, we've just, we've just skimmed the surface, but this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. This has been, this has been fun. We don't get to see each other I enough know. now that we've both absented ourselves from these evangelical yes. spaces. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. It is the truth, and I and I and the thing is, is that I yearn for this type of stuff. I feel oftentimes alone in yeah. in, in the work. Well, my wife and I, you know, feel alone in the work because mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, you see people. That, I'm getting ready to go to AAR, but it's like, okay, that's great. Now see people, and we'll have a heyday time for five days, yeah. and then it's all back to our corners. And I'm yep. just like, man. Um, where can folks find you though? Where can, where can they come and, you know, get you that honorarium, you know, get you that, you know, 50 grand to, to come out and speak for an hour. Uh, right. 
Yeah, if you want to talk about reparations, let's go that direction. You ain't lying. Uh, <laughs> um, I am. Um, I teach at um, Mercy University, so people can always look me up on the website there. My own website is drshaniqua.com, and you can find me on the Twitters and the Instagrams uh, at drshaniqua. And also, I want to also mention, too, and again, for those of you listening, as always, we'll put this in the show notes, whitehotpodcast.com. Her other book is Too Heavy a Yoke, Black Women and the Burden of Strength. Uh, And you've written a lot and you have a whole public era. And so I just, again, I want to emphasize that, that because I get I still get these questions like, well, who should we be reading and what resources should we be using? And I brought this up at a faculty meeting the day on a class that was supposed to be looking at this very subject. And there was not one person of color on the reading list. And I was like, "Um, what the hell is going on? Right. Right. (laughs) So. Right. Here is a resource. Yeah. A clean cut one. Um, So thank you so much, Doc. I appreciate you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Hey, folks, before you go, I got two great things to let y'all know. One, there are two new podcasts that I have out. Um, one that I helped produce, well, actually one that I produced, uh, and another one that I actually put together. Uh, the first one is called the Sold Out Podcast. This is a podcast uh, with Rashida Grace, with Rashida Washington and Mickey Grace. Uh, these two women are amazing women of color who are breaking some things down. Sold Out Podcast is wherever you find your podcast. White Dodge Podcast, put that together. That's out right now. And the other one is you gonna learn or gonna learn today that's go that's out right now wherever you find your podcast that's out so check that out that's a collection of my talks and i'm adding more to that uh weekly and it's just a collection of some of the things that i've done over the past few years in regards to education workshops um uh, uh keynotes and whatnot and so those that's just the space uh in case you're just curious and want to kind of get in more to some of these things those those that's a space for that so the sold out podcast and go and learn today y'all go check those out subscribe put them on your wish list they're free they're ready to go right now and best of all they're put out by people of color yeah okay let's do this peace peace